You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. So today we come to... um the end of the theological, at least the, yeah, the theological section of the book of, the, of Ephesians. The first three chapters is all about the gospel. It's about what God has done for us in Christ. It's about the theology upon which the Christian life is built. And we're ending that section. The book is divided in two sections, first three chapters, last three chapters. The last three chapters, Paul unpacks the implications for us practically. If, if this is the truth, then how should we then live our lives? What are the practical implications that God requires of us? If everything that I've said in the first three chapters are true, what does God require of us? How do we live our lives? And so this passage becomes something of a hinge for us between the two sections. And it ends with a, with a doxology where Paul, where Paul just kind of like, can't contain himself anymore, and there's just this outburst of praise and worship and glorying God, and and this is what he says. Nate's already read it for us, but in verse 20, he says this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen." The Apostle Paul had a deep, unshakable confidence that God was able to do exceedingly more than all that we could ask him to do or even imagine him doing in the church for the glory and the honor of Christ. Paul had this absolute, overwhelming confidence that God can do far more, far beyond what we could even ask him or imagine him doing in the church for the glory of Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, Harvest Niagara, what would you like God to do in our church? If if you could just sort of say to God, God, this is what I want, and I want you to do it now, what would you ask him for for our church? What are some of those things that we could specifically ask God for? Well, you may ask for a new lead pastor, somebody who's young and hip, not old and not so cool. That would be a good prayer. You you might ask for uh, uh, new staff pastors to help carry the load. You might ask for a deeper love and unity within the body of Christ, a deeper sense of uh, God's life-changing presence in our worship services. I think we could come up with a whole lot of things that we could pray for. We could ask for people to be saved, ask for baptisms to happen. We could ask for a lot of things that our kids would hear the gospel in Sunday school and it would touch their little hearts and that they would come to a place of faith in Jesus Christ at a really early age. We could develop a huge, long list of things that we could ask for. And God is able to do far more abundantly, exceedingly beyond what we would ask him to do. But then it says this, there are things that we can't imagine him doing that are beyond our imagining, beyond our comprehension. There are things that God can do in our church that would just simply blow our minds, that we couldn't imagine him doing in our church. And I think that's the point that Paul is making here in this passage of scripture. 
we can't imagine, we can't dream up, we can't think about, we can't get our minds around what God could do in this congregation of people in the years ahead. But although we can't imagine, although we can't sort of think about what God might do, because it's so mind-blowing, so beyond what we would imagine him doing, I want you to know this. Paul tells us the context in which he will do it. If God does things that we ask him to do, and if God does things that are sort of beyond our imagining, if God does mind-blowing things in our church, he is going to do it in a very specific context, and he gives us that context at the end of verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see that little phrase? That is the context in which God does mind-blowing stuff. When the church is filled with all the fullness of God, when we are so filled with his presence and his power, when we are so filled with his dynamic and his life and his spirit, God answers our prayers and he does mind-blowing stuff that we would never have thought to ask him to do. That's the climax of Paul's prayer right there, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And that should be our prayer for our church today. That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church 2,000 years ago. He said, folks, I want you to be filled up with the fullness of God. I want the living God, his manifest presence, to fill you and to fill your worship and to fill your church and to fill your ministries so that you are absolutely overwhelmed and mind-blown by what God does in your midst. There's something that we need to notice here if we're going to understand this passage properly. And to be honest with you, I wrestled with this passage. Sometimes there's passages of Scripture that are just so kind of deep. I think it's almost like the apostle runs out of words to express what he's trying to say. And I kind of struggled with this passage this week because it is one of those passages that is just unfathomable. It's so deep, it's so rich, it's so beautiful. And so I thought, how do you understand this passage? How do you get your mind around it? So the the thing that I want us to notice, I want us to remember is this, that two weeks ago I told you that chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, were essentially a parenthesis in Paul's thinking. They were a digression. He began chapter 3, verse 1, with these words, For this reason, I, Paul, and remember, he thought about the Gentiles being in Christ, and he went off on this tangent, this parenthesis about how God's grace had included the Gentiles, and he's just amazed by that. Now, he comes back in verse 14, and he repeats himself, For this reason. Now, what is the reason that he is going to pray? What is the reason that he bows his knees before the Father? Well, you've got to go back to the end of chapter 2 to understand it. He's talking about the church. And he says, uh, look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. That's what we are, a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, he says, 
I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason, because you are a holy temple in the Lord, I bow my knees before the Father and I pray certain things. Because if these certain things become a reality in your life, the fullness of God will be in your midst. I think that's sort of the big flow of thought. And I don't think that you can understand this passage of Scripture without at least thinking back to what happened about a thousand years before Paul wrote this passage of Scripture, when Solomon dedicated the first temple. The prayers are very, very similar, and the experience that Solomon had is exactly what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and I believe wants for us as well. Remember way back, and you read about it in, I think it's 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles, no, 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. The, the, they dedicated this newly built temple, and Solomon praised this prayer, and the Spirit of God filled the temple. There, there was this sense, this smoke, this cloud, and the presence of God, the fullness of God filled the temple. I think that picture is in Paul's mind when he thinks about this new flesh and blood temple that we have become in Christ. And when he talks in verse 3 that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, I think in the back of his mind there is that picture of the Shekinah glory of God falling on that temple. God filling that place. Being filled with the fullness of God. Now, God doesn't come down to us in a glory cloud as he did 2,000 or 3,000 years ago when, it, when Solomon dedicated that temple. But we are the temple of the living God. His presence is amongst us. And it's Paul's prayer that we would be filled with the fullness of God because when we are, God does these things that we ask him to do and then he blows our mind and does things that we couldn't, ask, we couldn't even imagine to ask for. And that's what I know that you long for in this church, Right? You want the presence of God to show up. You want God to do things that are going to absolutely blow our minds for his glory and his honor. The little phrase there in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. That little word there, that, is a conjunction. It really, it's an important little word. It means so that. Everything that he has prayed to this point is so that. And what he's praying are three specific things that if we honestly pursue passionately as individuals and as a church, will, I believe, result in greater experiences of the manifest presence of God filling filling us and filling this place. The three things that he talks about are in the beginning of of this section. So let's go up to chapter 3, verse 14, and let's begin to work through this passage. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Here's the first one. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So if we're going to be a church that is full full of the fullness of God, filled with the fullness of God, the first thing that we got to be passionate about is this, that we learn to rely upon the Holy Spirit. The first thing that Paul prays is that according to the riches of his glory, God's glory, he may grant us to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being. 
So let's talk for a second about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's important to understand this. If you are a believer today, you have all of the Holy Spirit that there is to get. When a person is saved, a person is baptized into Christ, they are baptized by the Holy Spirit, they are born again and they receive the Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity comes and takes up residence in our lives. It has to be that way. He does a miracle of salvation in our lives. We were dead in our sin, as Paul says. We were blind to the gospel. We were in rebellion against God. We loved sin more than righteousness. The Spirit of God intersects our lives. He transforms us, and he takes up residence within us. And he begins to live his life in us. That is what the Scriptures teach. Every Christian is baptized with the Holy Spirit. But there is one baptism and many fillings. And many Christians don't experience the indwelling power of the Spirit of God operative in their life day by day. Yes, they're Christians. They're born again. They have been transformed by the Spirit of God. They have come to a genuine faith. But having been born again, having been saved, they endeavor to do what God calls them to do in and of their own strength their own power, their own ability. The Bible says we are called to constantly be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about this when we get to chapter 5. Don't get drunk with wine, the apostle says, but be filled with the Spirit. So we'll talk then more about what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. The problem with many of us is that having been Baptized by the Holy Spirit, having been saved by the Holy Spirit, we are endeavoring endeavoring to live the Christian life in our own strength, in our own power, by our own resources. And I want to tell you this morning that it is absolutely, completely impossible to do that. You can try, you can strive, you can work, you can pour out energy, but you cannot be the person that God has called you to be apart from the filling, the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit of Christ in your life. You're incapable of living the way that God wants you to live. I'm not sure if I've told you this about myself, but it's a story that I tell a lot. So if I have, forgive me, but I think it's a good illustration of what I'm trying to say. For many years, I was like that. I was a Christian And I was endeavoring to lead the Christian life in my own strength, from my own resources. I was competent. I was capable. I was self-assured. I was self-reliant. And I was proud. I thought I could do it. I could please God. I was like that, that little engine that could, right? Just kept chugging along, trying to do it in my own strength and continually failing. When I was 30, I was moving from my first church to another church. Um, We had just bought a house, and it wasn't going to be completed in time, and I was a little bit worried about that. I had a bunch of ministry stuff that I was in charge of, camps and, and, and so on. I was having surgery on my nose where somebody had hit me and broke my nose, maybe because I was arrogant and proud, I'm not sure. Um, And then... That particular day, it was um, three, four days after Ashley, my first daughter, was born. We brought her home from the hospital. It was a Tuesday. And I began to feel strange. I began to feel very, very weird. And I phoned the doctor, who was a, a good friend of ours, who had delivered Ashley three or four days before this. 
And I said, Ken, I'm feeling really strange. I don't know what to do. And he says, well, I'll come over after work and I'll talk to you. And I was having panic attacks. And I was just sort of sliding into this deep emotional black hole. Tuesday night, we brought, home, we brought Ashley home at about two in the afternoon or so. Tuesday, by Tuesday night after supper, I was in the basement on a mattress in the fetal position, weeping. Ashley would cry, I would cry. I was completely paralyzed by fear and anxiety, just overwhelmed by all that was going on in my life. I couldn't cope. And what happened was that God essentially crushed me. As I said, I was... I, I thought that I was omnicompetent. I thought that I was capable. I thought that I was strong. I thought that I had lots of ability. I thought that I had lots of potential. And God showed me just how absolutely vulnerable and weak and broken I was. And I stayed there. The only thing that kind of gave me any comfort is that when Cindy had a moment looking after our little baby, she'd come downstairs to look after me. And she'd read me the Psalms. And, and for a moment, as she read the Psalms, that black cloud sort of lifted a little bit. But then when she had to go back to look after her daughter, I just went back into that hole. And so on Friday, I basically cried out to God like I'd never cried out to God before. And I said, Lord, if you're real, if everything that I believe about you is true, I need you to show up in my life. I need your strength. I need your grace. I don't have it. I am weak. I need you. I am desperate. And God answered that prayer. God showed up in in a miraculous, powerful way. Now, I wasn't better. It took me about six months to kind of get fully back on my feet again. Looking back, that was one of the best things that ever happened in my life. Because it brought me to the end of myself. It brought me to that place where I was able to understand that God's strength must be perfected in my weakness. And we've all got to come to that place where we realize just how weak and vulnerable we are. Like Jesus says it so clearly, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. You see, if if we're trying to live the Christian life in the power of the flesh, it is an absolute impossibility. The Spirit gives life, not only in our salvation, but also in our sanctification. It wasn't long after that that I read Colossians 2.6 in a new way that I'd never read it before. Paul says this to the Colossians, as, you're, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. How did I receive Christ as Lord? Well, my understanding of salvation is this, is that I was dead in my sins. I had, I had no inclination, no interest at all. I was happily going to hell, and he intersected me by grace. It was all of grace, all of grace. It was a gift of God, and he brought me to life again. He resurrected me. He did everything necessary to bring me to that place where I became a follower of Jesus. So as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. That same dynamic, that same power, that same enabling grace that brought me out of that tomb of blindness and spiritual death is the same power that must transform me. 
I can't deal with my lusts. I can't deal with my pride. I can't deal with my selfishness. I can't deal with my anger or my bad temper. I can't deal with any of those things on my own. I simply do not have the capacity. So God has given us a helper to strengthen us, to enable us, to empower us, to allow us to do what otherwise we could never do. If we're going to be a church that is filled with the fullness of God, we must be a church where we are being strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being. It must be that. If, you, if we are, if you are trying to live the Christian life in your strength, you cannot contribute one iota to the health and to the well-being and to the effectiveness of the church. We all must recognize our absolute complete dependency upon him, our desperate need of him, and that every morning we get out of bed, we must say, Lord, I can't, but you can. I'm incapable, but you are capable. I need to learn to rely on your grace and your strength. And we all have to come to that moment of crisis in our lives where we realize we are completely incapable I look back now, that was 34 years ago in my, my journey, and I look back at that experience that happened to me with a tremendous sense of thanksgiving. It was the most painful thing I've ever, I've never experienced physical pain that can compare to the emotional pain that I felt in those five or six days. But it was the most wonderful thing that God ever did for me because it brought me to that place where I realized I can't. I simply can't, but he can and If we're going to be a church filled with the fullness of God, folks, we've got to get there. We've got to come to that place. You don't, you don't, you don't need to go through a, an emotional crisis the, the, the way I did. But you just need to come to that place where you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and say, Father, I can't do this anymore. My sin's too big. The little engine that I thought could can't. I need you. I need you every hour. Holy Spirit, I need you. I need your strength made perfect in my weakness. When we do that, who gets the glory? Jesus does, right? Secondly, if we're going to be a church filled with the fullness of God, we need to have a commitment to Christ's likeness. Look what he says. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, verse 17. Now, that might look a little confusing because it seems on, you know, at first glance that he's just repeating himself that the Spirit may give you strength in the inner being and that Christ may dwell in your inner being in your hearts by faith. But I don't think he's repeating himself. I don't think he's, he's just sort of saying the same thing over and over again here. So let's do a little theology. We did a little doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Let's do a little, let's do a little doctrine of God. Who indwells the Christian? It's the Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity indwells us. Where is Jesus right now? He is seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for us in glory. That is the theology, that's the Christology that we believe in as, as Christians. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ. And this is kind of get, gets a little mind-blowing because who understands the Trinity, right? But Jesus told us in John, John sort of 14 through 16, repeatedly, he says, I'm going to go to the Father. It's a good thing that I'm going to the Father because when I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Spirit He's going to comfort you. He's going to help you. He's going to enable you. He's going to give you the strength that you need. So, so what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture 
is not the same thing that he just said in the previous verse. I think what he's saying is this, that what, what does it mean that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith? I think it's this, that the character, the nature, the person of Jesus might dwell in our hearts by faith. When we become Christians, we are called by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to personify Jesus. We are begin, we we're called to begin to live like him. That's why, that's why being strengthened in the inner man by his spirit is the first step, because unless we get that, unless we are filled up with the power of the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, we can never live like Jesus lives, lived. But that's what he's, what he's called us to do. Simply put, people living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit will produce the fruit of the Spirit. We are filled by the Spirit so that we produce the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is Christ-likeness. Galatians, we'll flip over there. Go back to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, look at what he says. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So a person filled up with the power of the Spirit of God begins to produce the likeness of Christ. Christ begins to dwell in his or her heart, and out of that inner being flows the fruit of the Spirit, the character, the likeness of Jesus. I want you to flip over to Luke chapter chapter 6 with me and read this passage of Scripture. Luke chapter 6, verses 43. Jesus is teaching here, and this is what he says. Luke chapter 6, verse 43 and following. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When Paul says what he says in verse 17 about having Christ in our heart by faith, he is talking about that Christ would be the center. Christ would be the core. Christ would be the example that we begin to epitomize in our life. And what, what Jesus says in that passage in, in Luke is that if that's true, if that's true, if Christ is on the throne of our hearts, the wake that we will leave behind us will be one of joy and love and peace and gentleness and kindness and patience and goodness and all of those things that exemplified the life of Christ. So to put this real simply, a Christian, this might be mind-blowing, a Christian is a person who looks like Jesus. A Christian is a person who approximates the character, the ethic, the likeness of Jesus. Not perfectly, never perfectly, but that's what we strive for. That's what we pursue. Christians live like Christ. And why is that important? Well, Christ was the incarnation of God. He came into a broken, divided, hurting, needy world. He incarnated the love of Christ in the gospel, and he changed the world. He has gone back to heaven, 
And now by his Holy Spirit's presence in us, he calls us to do what he did. You see that? We are the incarnation of Christ. We, if I can say it this way, we are the reincarnation of Christ. That's who we are as this holy temple. We are a, a flesh and blood living temple. And we live in this world to do for our world what Jesus did for his world. That's the point. And if we aren't filled with the power of his Holy Spirit, and if we aren't producing the character and the likeness of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, we simply cannot do what God has called us to do, and we will never experience the filling of the fullness of God in our midst. But if we learn to love like Jesus loved, God is going to surprise us. God is going to show up in miraculous and powerful and life-changing ways that will not only impact this congregation, but will flow out of us into our world. Lastly and quickly, we've got to trust the greatness of grace. Look at verse 18. Well, let me just read from verse 17 again. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may, so that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. Paul's prayer is that we would be rooted and grounded in love and that together we would come to understand, to comprehend, to, to really plumb the depths of what it means to be loved by Christ. The length and the breadth, the height and the depth of the love of Christ. What he's talking about here, when he talks about these dimensions, he's not saying anything beyond this. These are boundless dimensions. The love of Jesus for you and for me is boundless. It goes on forever, out forever, up forever, and down forever. There is no way that we can put a parameter on it. There's no end to it. The love of Christ is unending. We call that grace. And Paul wants the the Ephesian church to know more and more and dig deeper and deeper into the grace of God. He wants them to understand, to appreciate, to, to delve into, to explore the first three chapters of the book the gospel. He wants them to understand the love of Christ and make that the study of their lives. The grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, he is saying, root yourself, ground yourself in the gospel of grace. That's basically what I think he's saying in that passage of scripture. So what does it mean for us? It means that we become a church that is rooted in, is founded in, stands upon, is unequivocal about the gospel of grace. We preach grace unashamedly. It's the engine, it's the power, it's the thing that defines us, it's the power that moves us forward. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace. God's unmerited love for sinners That's what we preach, that's what we stand on, we never equivocate, we never back down, we never stop talking about it, because grace is the message. We never become, and I should say this, the the greatest revivals in all of history have happened when the church has rediscovered the gospel of grace. When the church has been filled with the fullness of God, has always, in my understanding, corresponded with those moments when the church has rediscovered grace and fallen in love with grace and has preached 
the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ unashamedly. That's when God shows up. That's why we must never preach a works-based salvation because it diminishes grace. God does his part, you do your part, and we all go to heaven. That's not the gospel. It diminishes, it besmirches grace. We never allow the church to become a legalistic church. God saves us, now you work really hard. Here are the rules, follow the rules, and we'll all get to heaven. God doesn't show up in that place. Because he gets some glory and we get some glory. We get to pat ourselves in the back as we follow the rules like the Pharisees did. That's why we would never become a seeker-centered church that preaches a self-help gospel so that everybody can live their best life now because that's not the gospel. We never preach that God wants us all wealthy and healthy and happy because that's not, the prosperity gospel is not the gospel. There's only one gospel. And true revival, the fullness, when we are filled with the fullness of God, true revival happens when we preach and stand on unashamedly the pure gospel of the unmerited love and grace of God for sinners. So let's just take a second to review what we've talked about. To be filled with the fullness of God, to experience that, I think what Paul is saying is required, for a church requires three things. It requires a group of people committed to the principle that they can't do it. A group of people humble enough to say, God, I don't have the strength to overcome my, my desire for material things. I don't have the strength to overcome this inclination to find my security in my bank account. God, help me. I am am desperately in need. Would you, Holy Spirit, come into my life right now and give me the grace and the strength to do what I will never do on my own? It takes people who, having understood that, find the strength to begin to live other-centric lives. You begin to live like Christ. His love, his kindness, his servant attitude, his ethic, his purity, his gentleness, his grace. It begins to flow out of you. You become a person filled by the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit. Like, this stuff isn't complicated, right? Pretty simple. This is Christianity 101. And then all we do is we preach the gospel. Spirit-filled people who live like Jesus preach the gospel. And what does Paul say? Into that context, see, I believe that's, that creates a low-pressure area. That life lived in community, all of us together, it creates a low-pressure area into which the wind of the Spirit of God blows powerfully. And that's called revival. That's when God answers our prayers and does exceedingly and abundantly beyond what we could ever ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. That's when God revives the church. And folks, if there's anything that we need right now, it's revival. To be filled with the fullness of God. Read the history of the church. There have been Christians who have been together worshiping, and suddenly, surprisingly, shockingly, the wind of the Spirit begins to blow in their fellowship and tears begin to run down their face. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit begins to lay heavily upon them. And relationships that were broken begin to get healed. 
and sins that were intransigent in the lives of hardened men and women begin to dissolve. And that church is radically changed. Read about the Welsh revivals in 1904. God did amazing things. He just blew the minds of those Christians. You can read newspaper articles today about little Welsh towns had 16 police officers. This is the newspapers. 16 police officers in this one little Welsh town. They had nothing to do because crime stopped. So they formed four quartets and went about churches singing. There was literally stories in the newspapers about slowdowns in the mines. Back then in the coal mines in Wales, they used to use donkeys to pull the coal. And the men used to curse at the donkeys to get them to move. These guys got saved. And they stopped using foul, vulgar language. And the poor old donkeys didn't know what they were being told to do. So there was literally a slowdown in the mines because they couldn't get the coal from the, couldn't get the, coal from the, 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 the coal face to the elevator to get it out. Like these are, that happened 116 years ago in Wales when a church was filled with the fullness of God. God can do exceedingly and abundantly, far, far, far more abundantly than we could even ask or imagine for his glory in our church. But Paul puts these almost conditions. He says you need people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, living in the power of the Holy Spirit. People whose wakes don't hurt or offend or upset people, but who bring peace and grace and love, just the way Jesus did. And people who just love to preach the gospel. It's a simple message. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that changes the world. When we get that, if by God's grace we get that, we will be the kind of flesh and blood temple into which the Shekinah glory of the living God will descend. And we have no idea. We have no idea what God will do. But I'll tell you, it'll blow our minds. It'll blow our minds. So, does that appeal to you? Don't stop praying for a new senior pastor. Don't stop praying for financial freedom so that we can plant churches. Those are good things. But really begin to pray that God would bring you to the end of your, yourself. That he would bring you to that place where you just go, God, I can't. I'm done with this. I cannot do it on my own. I need you. I desperately, desperately need you. Lord, I want my wake, the trail I leave in my life, not to be hurt, damaged, offended people, but people who know the love of Jesus because of the way I've interacted with them. The forgiveness, the grace, the kindness, the mercy of Christ. And I just want the gospel. I don't need the glitz. I don't need the glamour. I don't need all of that other stuff. Just give me Jesus, the gospel. Let that be the heart and soul of our church. Let that be the heartbeat. And then, Lord, in your time, would you just blow our minds for the glory and the honor of Jesus? Let's pray and ask God that he would do that in our church.
for his glory. Father, I just thank you. I thank you for these, uh, these words that the apostle wrote. They're so deep. There's so much there. We've just skimmed the surface, Lord. But Lord, you've whetted our appetites to be that kind of people and to experience what it means to be filled with the fullness of God, personally and corporately. Lord, 1904 seems like a long time ago, but there's no reason why people 100 years from now can't be talking about the Niagara Peninsula in 2021 and what you did and how you powerfully moved and how you just blew into that place and changed the society, changed the culture for your glory and honor. Lord, would you do that? Do, first of all, in us what needs to be done, that we would come to the end of ourselves, and rely on your strength. That would be passionate about living out Christ-likeness. That out of the abundance of our heart, our lives would speak that Jesus is on the throne. And that, Lord, we would just be focused on the gospel. Preach it, hold tightly to it, never waver from it. That we would preach the length, the breadth, the height, and depth of the love of Christ for sinners. And then, Lord, do you do what you're going to do. Surprise us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.